Welcome to Shop Talk Live, Fine Woodworking Magazine's bi-weekly podcast. I'm senior web producer Ed Pernick, and joining me today are Fine Woodworking Executive Art Director Mike Pekovich. Hey, guys. And Senior Editor Matt Kenny. Hello, all. As always, spread the word about this podcast to your fellow woodworkers. Stop by our iTunes page. Maybe you want to leave a comment, a sweet five-star rating. You can even go to our iHeartRadio page and uh, catch us there. Uh, so before we um, head into the questions for this week, we got a um, a complaining e-letter about how we, or I'm sorry, email about how we sort of inadvertently put down the shaper on the last episode. Um, somebody was asking whether to buy a shaper or a router table, and we kind of said, "Listen, a shaper. If you're a mill, if you're doing mill work and you're running hundreds of feet of lumber, yeah, go get a shaper. But it's kind of overkill." if you're just making furniture pieces. And uh, so William wrote in, I resent the put down to the lowly shaper. I've used one for 40 years now, and like all power equipment, you need to respect it. If you like routers, you'll learn to love your shaper. As far as cutters go, you can pick up the old Delta Sears steel cutters for less than five or 10 bucks, and they provide a much nicer profile than router bits can. I also grind my own profiles and have been using them for years. Panel cutters, either four or five inch, will give you a much nicer profile than any other router panel cutter. Uh, I use my 10 degree panel cutter on half inch stock for drawer bottoms even. You can buy new shapers for less than 500 bucks for a horse and a half and less than a thousand bucks for a three horse unit and the footprint is no bigger than some router tables. If you have shop room large enough for a floor model router table, Get yourself a shaper. It'll hold up better and give you much nicer profiles and moldings, and you can also continue to use your router bits with your shaper. Gentlemen? William. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> I don't like the tone of this. <laughs> the dad tone. William. William, William, William. 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 I don't agree. I don't disagree with you at all. I, I think <gasps> your your point is really well taken. Um I would still have to say that they're, that they're two different. I think the point we were trying to make is they're really two different machines and really suited for different tasks. Yeah, and Bill. Yeah. For what most you know, one-off furniture makers are doing, uh, the point was that, that the router table is probably an, enough. And I think your point where grinding your own knives to create custom profiles is a really cool thing. It sounds kind of scary to me. I, I know people can do it, but that's kind of a, a wild thing. So you're not stuck with yeah, what's, make, what's well, available in the catalog. Or you got to make sure they're balanced when you're done. You got to make sure the profiles. Yeah, I don't exactly think it's that balanced. Yeah, that's an interesting, that's akin to when you sharpen your, I learned that when you sharpen your lawnmower blades, because uh, I do it myself, uh, I learned your always, the last step is always to Make balance sure the balanced. center and make sure it's balanced. Otherwise, yeah. the thing can like spin off your yeah. lawnmower and kill you. Yes, I guess it's the same principle. I, yes, I guess it is. So my, and my grandfather died that way. Ed, thanks for bringing it up. Wow. Moving on. <laughs> um, and also, William, your point that you can get a better quality cut from a, a shaper than a router bit is absolutely true. It has to do with the diameter of the cutter and the angle in which the blades are cutting. I mean, the smaller diameter router. Number one, you're stuck with smaller profiles. Number two, it's it's coming in at a much steeper angle of attack, so there's more prone to chatter and, and tear out, whereas it's sort of like the, the difference between using a table saw blade to cut a groove or using a little router bit to cut a groove. The table saw blade is going to give you a better cut. So points well taken. Um, I, I would still say that a router table is probably suited better for a, a one-off furniture maker. If you are getting into a lot of production work, cabinetry, raised panel doors, running lots of molding, absolutely, uh, Shaper, go for it. Yeah, I think the issue is really, it comes down to uh, that if you are a guy or lady in your home shop, it just doesn't make sense to have a Shaper because you'll still want to have a router, you know? Yes. And you can have a router and use it in your table and use it handheld, and that'll be more useful to you than having a Shaper and then also having to go out and get a router. And it's just, it's how far are you down the rabbit hole of making furniture? Right. You know, at some point when you're, but you have to be pretty far into the rabbit hole when it finally makes sense to get a shaper. Yes. When you're just at the at the edge of the hole, it just doesn't make sense to get a shaper. That's a pretty serious piece of machinery to okay. invest in. All right. All right. Well, thanks, Bill, for your <laughs> lament. Um, just kidding. Uh, so anyhow, on to the first question of the day. It comes from Ben, and Ben writes, I have a quick question regarding design proportion. 
I'm building a six-board blanket chest. I was determined to find some really wide stock for this project, but the best I could locate was some 14-inch wide cypress. My question, what length should I shoot for with this cabinet? My first thought was to use the golden ratio, but a 14-inch by 22-inch chest seems rather small for a blanket chest. Nothing I sketch out seems to look right. Any help would be great. So, six-board yeah. chest. There's some anatomy to discuss first. Right. Well, so, the, the how two, does this work? Well, the two ends uh, run. The grain runs vertically up and down. That's normally how they're traditionally how they're made. Yeah. So what Ben is saying, because you're running those vertically, that 14-inch wide board sort of determines roughly the depth of the Your, blanket chest. Yes. So this this uh, golden ratio, kind of a three to five thing. I think Ben, what you're talking about is thinking of the top of the blanket chest. If it's 14 inches wide, you plug in your your numbers and you come out with a magic dimension of 22 inches long. Might be a little small, um, but uh, you can think of this in different terms. And that is, look at the the front of the case. Uh, so let's say. Going across the front, you have a 14-inch wide board, but you have some legs extending three, let's say, four inches down. So the height of this is 18 inches high. Yes. So you plug in that that sort of three to five into 18 as opposed to 14, you're going to come out with something maybe closer to 30 inches wide by 18 inches high. I think you're getting pretty close to blanket chest size. Yeah, one thing that... Uh, that's the way I would think about it, too, is that when you start to think about the shape or the size of this cabinet, you don't want to think in terms of the board, but the overall rectangle or three-dimensional box that the entire piece will occupy. Right. So that could include if, you know, if you were making a chest of drawers, if you had uh, or, a, a you know, that, something that had crown molding on the top, the crown molding would fit also inside that that three-dimensional rectangle right. uh, uh, that that you would use. So you're right that these things always have feet cut into the ends, and those are going to be a certain height, and you want to take that into account. So yep. you're right. It's not 14 inches. It's 18 inches or maybe 18 and a half, 18 and three quarter yes. because of the top. Yep. So there I think you're in the ballpark. And here's another way to think of a blanket chest. What do you do with a blanket chest? Okay, you stick maybe blankets in there. Generally. Yep. The other thing you do in a blanket chest, especially if it's at the foot of your bed, you sit on it and put your socks on. Yes. So think of this thing in terms of the proportions of a little bench, in which case 18 inches high is perfect. 14 right. inches deep is perfect. 30 inches wide is perfect. So it's like a nice bench that you can stick stuff inside of. So yeah. That's where I keep all of my life-size child dolls inside of bench. <laughs> <laughs> So what are the joinery considerations, you know, considering the ends, the grain is running vertically, and the front and back, it's it's running horizontally? Yeah. Well, yeah, you get cross-grain problems, cross-grain movement. So normally they are nailed together. Not only are they nailed together, traditionally we're talking back in 1700s, um, there was also no central air, not a lot of heating to speak of. So really seasonal movement wasn't as extreme as it is today. So don't heat your, your house or air condition it. Well, that's a good idea. You should well, be in good shape. I don't do that, and I have lots of movement in my house. Yeah. Well, I do heat it in the, in the winter. You're right. It dries out through, uh, right. through the wood stove. Here's another option for our friend, Ben. Ben. Uh, instead of... I know that you want to use a single wide board because it's sexy and all that, sure. right? But what you could do is to get a little bit wider, and that would adjust, you could adjust your dimensions that way, is to take that 14-inch wide board and, and then uh, take – you said you bought a lot of it. So take some of the uh, pieces that you're not going to be using and rip off the quarter sawn or rift sawn parts that are on either edge of this uh, extra board and then take those rifts on or quarters on parts and glue them on to both edges of your parts for your cabinet. So not just a two inch wide board stuck on one end of this 14 inch. You board. could do a one inch strip on both one on either side one and inch. that adds two inches. Yeah, right. Uh, and that would get you to 16 inches. And or, the, that grain match is going to give you a more invisible glue line. Yes, because okay. it's all straight grain. Cool. It's You're going to get like an invisible glue line and you'll also have a 16 inch wide board. And I should say, I'll give credit that I got that idea from Greg Arsenault. Oh. Yeah, not what? from you, Ed. Oh. 
uh, from uh, from Greg Arsenault, who wrote an article, two articles for us recently uh, in the magazine. I should so. say, Greg got that idea from me. So really, yes. he did. <laughs> yeah, he got that idea from you. Uh, okay, moving on. Uh, Matt, not Kenny, writes, Conventional wisdom says keep your table saw blade set just a bit higher than the thickness of the workpiece you're cutting. If you have a riving knife, there's no doubt, this is no doubt good advice, but what if you have a more traditional splitter? Now, before I continue on with the question, we should clarify, a riving knife, when you raise the blade or lower the blade, the riving knife moves with the blade. It lowers and raises with the blade. That means that the space between the riving knife and the cutting teeth on the blade never changes. It's always the same, okay? Keep that in mind. Um, So, with a splitter... As you lower the blade, two things happen. So a stationary splitter. So a riving knife is a splitter. Yeah. But not every splitter is a riving knife. Right. Right. Because with a splitter, now when you lower the blade, it gets further away from the splitter. Right. splitter being just a stationary bar or piece of wood at some distance behind the blade. Thank you, Professor Taxonomy. So. You're welcome. (laughs) As you lower the blade with a splitter, two things happen. One. The back of the blade gets farther away from the splitter, potentially increasing the possibility of kickback. Two, the teeth of the blade spend a lot more time in the workpiece and at a shallow angle where they exert force on the wood in the direction of the operator. With the blade set high, the teeth move almost vertically through the wood, cutting more like a bandsaw in the front and kicking up instead of back at the rear. Assuming you have a proper blade guard in place, it seems like having the blade cranked up could actually be safer with a traditional splitter. Thoughts? Right. That's because the higher the blade, the closer the blade would be to, to the, the traditional splitter, splitter right. less chance of it getting the, the board sort of twisting into the space between and causing kickback. Yeah, and the second aspect, the, the cutting forces with a higher blade. Is correct. So, yeah. no, I would say that is conventional wisdom. So that's, that's not apart from anything. It's... I think what's going on, let's forget the splitter for just a second and talk about blade height. Most of us don't have guards on our tables, uh, table saws. And for me, that includes me. I don't like a whole lot of blades sticking up above the wood as I'm cutting. That exposure kind of freaks me out. So, yeah, I know that having it higher is going to give me a cleaner cut. Having it lower, um, less blade, a little safer, maybe, maybe not, because there is maybe a, a greater likelihood to kick back with that lower blade from um, what you just talked about. <clears throat> but um, let's continue on from there, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, I was like, oh, I lost my train of thought. You take it over. I'm done. Uh, yeah, so if you're – well, the other thing about having your blade higher, I've noticed the higher your blade, the easier it is to push the wood through. Mm. Okay. Uh, Again, because it's cutting down instead of toward you. Yes. The force is down instead yeah, of back at yeah. you. Okay. So uh, what I would say is what he sh- what he should do – uh, the, the the workaround for this is something that a lot of us do, which is just get rid of the splitter that came with your saw. If it even had one. It even with. had one. Mine yes. didn't even have one when I bought it. Right. Get rid of the splitter. And instead, what you can do is make several zero clearance inserts for your saw. Throat and, plates. Throat plates, yeah. Um, and each one of those would have a shop-made splitter in it. And you can set each one of those for a different blade height and locate the splitter so that it's right behind the blade for that blade height. And then you can always have minimum exposure with the splitter right behind the blade. And the way I've done this in the past is actually when uh, you raise the blade all the way and then lower it. And then I put a splitter in so that when I raise the blade again to, say, three-quarter inches above the table, it actually cuts into the splitter a little bit. So it's right behind the blade. So it's right behind the blade. Yeah. So you get that effect that a riving knife gives you in terms so your, of— your first cut is to cut the kerf in the plate. Cut the kerf in the plate. And you glue in the little splitter stock. Yep. And then you do the same thing. You raise the blade into the splitter stock. Yeah, but this time I'm only going to raise it, say—let's say I'm going to make one for stock three-quarter inches and lower. That means I'm probably going to raise the blade an inch above the table. And that'll work for anything from three-quarter inches down. Which is most of what you're doing. Yeah. And you so right. you, you could make several different inserts to account for different blade heights that you would need for different part thicknesses. Right. I, I 
do exactly what you did, but because I don't want the blade always up like an inch high if I'm ripping, you know, quarter inch plywood or something, I do have one set. So my maximum stock is, you know, say half inch. Right. And I have one set a little bit higher. Yeah. And normally the, the, the amount you want the blade or the teeth above the wood is you want, you definitely want the gullets to clear the wood. Uh, so that when they come up, they eject the dust okay. right into your eyeballs and you can't see. But, <laughs> but you, that's what I've always – how I've always done. You want yep. the gullets to clear the stock when, when they, at the apex of the curve. Right. And then a little bit more is what I do. Okay. So. All right. Well, I, uh, I say we move into our first segment of the day, and that's going to be pins versus tails, where we go mano a mano, head to head, tate to tate. On a variety of topics, gentlemen, it's tater time. To tater to tater. Tater to tater. <laughs> it's time to duke it out over. Is a furniture maker an artist? Is furniture making to be considered a form of art, or are we merely just a bunch of technicians? Well, the first thing I'll say about this, I'll go back to Mr. Professor Taxonomy. Yeah. Some furniture is art. Not all furniture is art. Okay. That's what I would say. Where where, where does everybody weigh in on this, Matt? Uh, well, for me, it depends. I would, and I would, I've said this before on the podcast and I'll say it again, that for me, some things that I make, I make simply because they're beautiful. I want a beautiful object and I don't care about the functionality of them. So that's particularly the case when I make a bed or a table, no, I'm just kidding, a box. It's boxes. Yeah. <laughs> Baby furniture. Don't, don't sit on that bed. Don't sit on that bed. It's just meant to be pretty. Yes. Um, it's no, a corner bed. When I make boxes, for me, the box is – that's what it – It's that's the object is the box. And I just want it to be pretty. And if someone says, well, what am I supposed to put in it? Because Asa always brings this up. Well, what are you going to put in it? <laughs> I'm like, no, I don't care. Don't put anything in it. Just – it's pretty. Put it on the, on the entryway table. Put it on the counter in the kitchen or wherever. And just appreciate it for what it is. Uh, it's a beautiful little object. Uh, larger pieces of furniture that are do have a function, I believe, can still be art, are art, um, and uh, but have a function too. And I, I don't think there's a problem to say that there's functional art. Uh, yeah, I mean, for me, from a strict sense, coming from an art background, I'm not saying that I know more than you about oh art, God, but let me just throw this out here. <laughs> now, it, it kind of comes down to this for me in that, um, that first and foremost, a piece of furniture, if it's truly furniture, uh, has to be functional. Yes. And that's not a bad thing. It's not to say that, that it's not art and that it's not as good as art, because I think, you know, furniture should be beautiful and aesthetically pleasing in some of the stuff I've seen you know, is, is just fantastic. It's certainly what I strive for. But but the important thing for me is is functionality. Um, does it perform the way it's supposed to perform? You know, can I sit on a chair without it breaking? You know, um, and then beyond that point, is it attractive, aesthetically pleasing? I think that's important. I mean, Toshio Odate, um, he spoke of this too. He said that the craftsman's main um, responsibility and sort of social contract is to provide furniture that's well-made and, and functions well in use. And then beyond that, it should be beautiful, but but nothing comes before the functional aspect. So it's sort of functional versus non-functional. When I think of art, you know, art is, is a non-functional thing. It, it doesn't have to earn its its way in the mm -hmm. world. It's just, it is what it is, and it's, it's, it's an original uh, creative expression of the maker. The maker is not really thinking of anything beyond that creative urge. I'm making this. Um, it is what it is because I want it that way. I think of it like cooking. You can be very artistic in cooking, but the bottom line is, does it taste good? Yes. Does it give me food poisoning? Do I want to eat this? You can't say, well, I made it from these ingredients. I, I built my own stove and I, you know, I use firewood that I chopped down from uh, old growth redwood and now you should eat it. It's like, fine, but if it doesn't taste good, it's not good. And I think furniture, there's a certain functional aspect which makes it more of a craft in a good sense and not just art. But I, wait a minute. So you're saying that it's not necessarily art because it's functional, but but then by that measure, is a writing desk, you know, uh, full of marquetry made by Andre Boulle, that's not art? Uh, it's art... Um, 
No, not not in the strict sense. It's a writing desk. I don't agree. Well, here's the thing. So I think our art can be absolutely functional. The thing is, is that you there's two different ways to evaluate it, and one is to simply say. You know, furniture at its most rudimentary has to be functional. Yes. And that's, that's absolutely correct. But as human beings, we've gone beyond that and said that furniture – I don't want my furniture to be simply functional. I also want it to be incorporated into the overall aesthetic of this adobe. Uh, not adobe. I, abode. Abode. I got stuck between adobe and abode uh, in this in this in this house that I have. Adobe abode. Yes, that we have. Th- there is an overall aesthetic appeal. I mean, think about green and green, right? You're some of your buddies there. They thought that it is absurd to think that you can move the furniture from one house to the next. Yeah, that was a concept of, of stickly right. as well, right? And why is that? It's not because of the of the functionality. It's because aesthetically, oh, the whole house as a whole is a piece of art. The whole house is this you, is a functional object. It, sure, but yes. why can't it be art? But it also makes an aesthetic statement, yeah. and that makes it art. Yeah. Okay, so we're we're basically talking about definitions of what is the definition of art, which yeah. don't don't go down. Speaking of rabbit right. holes, let's not go there. For me, I guess the only thing I I, I want to add to this conversation, which might be a little bit too long, is that um, I come from an art background and I've done a lot of what there I go, consider again, fine art, drawing and painting. You know, painting you're exercising demons in your brain, or you're writing a song and you're putting it out. But for me, furniture is it's the important thing for me is. That functionality, which is also there's a certain humility to that. It's sort of like here's a box and you put stuff in it. And really the stuff you put in it is kind of just as important as the beauty of the mm-hmm. box because if you make a box for um, <clears throat> shoes and it's too small and they don't fit, as beautiful as the box is, it's not performing its function. But it's that connection, that functionality. When you make something for someone, um, what I make is a connection to that person. And it's a really important, vital thing. It's like cooking food for people, again, that same analogy, and that if I make something for someone and, and they use it on a daily basis, for even the most mundane tasks, the little kitchen table they drink coffee at every morning or nightstand to put their, their water glass on, every time they use that and come in contact with that, ideally, it improves their quality of life in a really small but yeah. I think important way. I agree. I mean, there would be, for me, there would be a difference between if I just said, all right, I'm going to make a box. And or my wife asking me, would you make a box for me to keep these bags of tea in? Yes. That w- I would approach those two things differently. And I would m- – the success or failure of those two projects would be uh, evaluated according to different criteria for me because it's two different things. So uh, I think this is why ultimately pins and tails never works because I don't know if there's really a disagreement. Yeah, here. no. Mostly um, because Mike usually admits well, that I'm I mean, right. Well, I mean, you, you, the other day you were talking about a project, which for me is like the ideal project. You inherited this small sake set. Yes. And you want to make a small little wall piece to house the bottle in the different cups. Mm-hmm. And so there you want it to be obviously aesthetically beautiful. It's very important. Um, it's also serving a really important function. So for me, that is the holy grail of why I work in wood. It's to have those special opportunities to make something that fulfills a function that is that important where both the beauty and the functionality are equally important. So if you want to call that art, cool. I just call that. What I would say is ultimately the, the ideal is that the functionality in the, in the aesthetics disappear into one another. Yeah. That's why it's so hard. It's a really tough craft. Yeah. Yeah. I once, I once, I had that. I had the same conversation with Phil Lowe because the first time I ever worked with him, I said something to the effect of I was looking at some projects he was working on. I said, Phil, you are a genuine artist. And he corrected me and said, uh, nope, just a technician, hmm. which I thought was crazy. I don't mean yeah. to disagree with the master, but crazy. Yeah, he's, um, it, but Phil's extremely modest. He is. Yeah. Um, my dad, I remember when I was a kid, had a, a quote in one of his – he used to keep notebooks for everything. And uh, on one of his notebooks, it had a quote. I don't know who it's from, but who it's attributed to. But it said, art is within you. The craft is what you learn. 
which yeah. kind of yeah. well, the larger issues. I like that. We need to wrap this up because I'm yeah. sure people are snoring no, right now. <laughs> but let, let me tell you this: that uh, in the dialogues of Plato, Socrates talks about something he calls techne all the time. It's where we get our, our term technology from. Hmm. And for Socrates, here's what counts as technies are basically involved knowledge that you can instruct somebody on. So I can instruct you on how to do this. It's a it's an organized system of knowledge. Here's what are some technies: medicine, uh, uh, husbandry, uh, horse training, uh, carpentry, sculpting, painting. All of these things are this. They made no distinction. They were all the same. Hmm. They were all a, a body of knowledge that you can you could teach to someone else. Yeah, oh, very interesting. Yeah. I'll leave it on one more quote from Gustav Stickley, one of the, the founders of American Arts and Crafts movement. He said, "You should have nothing in your house, which is neither useful nor beautiful." Mm. All right. All right. Very nice. Well, um, moving on to our next question. This comes from Willie, and Willie writes. Because of where I live, I'm forced to order lumber over the internet. I bought an inexpensive moisture meter to check the lumber as it comes into the shop and compare it to wood I've had for a while. The instrument I bought only has a low range of 8%, so every time I've checked lumber, it doesn't have a reading because it's below 8%. My question is, would you go ahead and start using this lumber, or would you still let it acclimate? Or do I need to buy a more accurate moisture meter? All right. Well, there's a couple of issues here. First of all, Willie... You need to move <laughs> somewhere where there's a, lumber, a lot of lumber yards, and so you can go and see your lumber before you buy it. Okay, next question. <laughs> uh, what did we decide on this? I think we well, the first question you brought this up, Matt, is what's really important to know is not just what the lumber is coming into your shop, but what's the moisture content of the lumber that's in your shop. That's right. I did bring that up. So yes. let's say the moisture, the content of the lumber you buy is really dry. Let's say below eight percent, but the same cherry board in your shop that's been in there for any length of time is reading eleven percent. Right. Until the new stuff reads the same as the existing stuff, you're not ready to go. That's right. correct. So, you know, ideally, but if everything in your shop is below 8% and the, good. and the meter doesn't read anything, then I think you need a new meter or throw it away and anything new comes into your shop, um, keep it in your shop for a couple of weeks before you work on it. Yeah, because it's not so much the, the, the moisture meter is not the issue here. The the what the real thing for Willie is that yeah the, the 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 lumber you bring in, you want it to be the same as the lumber that's been there for a long time. Yes. Before you start to build, which is with sort it. of that would be sort of reaching equilibrium moisture content. Yes. Yes. EMC. Yeah, and I also feel I should go back and point. It's actually you can buy lumber on the internet very easily nowadays. It, it, good places they'll show you the boards before you buy them. They'll send you pictures, mm-hmm. or they'll have pictures on the internet. So I sh- I don't want to disparage internet. Yeah. Lumber dealers. No, and I think a, a, a disparity in moisture content be- between what's being mailed to you and what your shop is isn't necessarily a an indicator of quality of the lumber that you get. It's Absolutely just, not. It's yeah. an indicator of just the conditions under which the lumber had been stored prior to getting into your shop. So Yes. Um, yeah. But yeah. It, it, the important thing is there's no such thing as ideal moisture content in terms of absolute terms that the wood needs to be in order for you to work. It just needs to match the current humidity of right. of your. Sh- There's only your ideal shop. moisture contents for particular environments, not absolutely as you as you right. said. Yes, you don't want the wood actively to be uh, absorbing or expelling moisture as you're trying to work, because that means the wood is moving as you're trying to yeah. turn it into something else. Correct. Yeah. So, in that moisture content in my shop could be different from what it is in your shop. Right. And so if 8% might be good for me, for you it might need to be 10%. Right. Yeah. All right. Okay. Well, moving on to Roger. Roger wrote I w- uh, Roger wrote a treatise on hand planes. Uh, <laughs> hey, <okay>. Roger. <laughs> Roger writes, I was recently building a dining table of figured mahogany, lumberyard labeled it African. Before starting this project, I decided to make one of my largest hand tool purchases and buy a smoothing plane. I chose a Lee Nielsen low-angle bevel-up smoothing plane over the 4.5 smoother. I also ordered an additional 33-degree and 90-degree blade. The 90-degree is supposed to work like a scraper. 
I wasn't sure how I would sharpen the 90 degree blade, so I tried it right out of the box on the tabletop. It did nothing. So I took it to a local sharpening shop and had them grind a 43 degree bevel. Now this basically, once it was mounted into the plane, it gave it a 55 degree effective bevel in the plane. I honed the blade with no micro bevel. With this in hand, I went to the tabletop hoping to get a nice smooth surface. Instead, I had terrible tear out and like an idiot kept at it thinking that I could eventually smooth everything out. The table is now in use with noticeable divots because my wife blew up when I said I was going to start over. So is a 65 degree bevel like Mike uses a magical threshold angle for figured wood? What are the proper effective plane blade angles for surfaces or types of wood grain? I was going on a 37 degree for end grain, 45 degree for straight long grain, and 55 degree for figured long grain. Oh my gosh! Yeah, we a need lot to, going we need to consult our accountant before we answer this question. <laughs> <laughs> um, wow! Um, wouldn't it be nice if we could just say yes? That's the magic threshold. Yes. Next question. Yes. Well, um, blade angle uh, can play a difference in the way that your plane behaves and. Um, the results you get on different woods, whether it's end grain, well-behaved woods, or really, really tough woods. Um, so the first thing when I when I hear you say you have this blade and you got tons of tear out right away, um, I'm not going to really blame it on blade angle just yet because regardless of blade, blade angle, you can get bad results on anything by taking too heavy of a cut. I mean, basically tear out and the thickness of the depth of cut you're taking, there's pretty much a one-to-one -one correlation, as long as you're planning in the right direction. Um, figured wood, sometimes there is no right direction. So the thinner the cut, the less tear out you're going to get. Number two, sharpness is directly related to how thin of a cut you can take. So whenever I hear anyone saying, I get tear out, I don't immediately go to change your blade angle. I go make sure you're sharp. And once you're sharp, make sure you're set up to take as thin of a cut as possible because you can be as sharp um, as you can possibly be. And if you're still set up for too heavy of a cut, you're kind of throwing away all the effort you, you put into getting sharp. Once you're sharp, okay, blade angle can have a small difference. Um, and the thing for me, the reason I also don't think it's that big of a deal is because at 45 degree blade angle, a really, really sharp hang plane can handle pretty much about 95% of anything you can throw at it. That other 5%, a portion of that can be handled a little bit better with a higher blade angle that I, I talked about last week. But you know what? Everything can be handled with an even higher uh, cutting angle. In essence, a card scraper, which you're cutting beyond 90 degrees, will handle everything without tear out. So, you know, the short answer is, is 45 degree, plain, sharpened, will handle almost everything. Card scraper handles everything else. And that, that little incremental, that little wedge of difference between those two things, yeah, a higher blade angle can work. For you, 55 didn't work. For me, 55 didn't work. So I went up to 65. Yeah, did better. Um, it's kind of cool, but, you know, get back to basics, get really sharp, get your plane set up, get taking really thin shavings, and then from there decide what you want to do. The reason why Mike is always so popular with our listeners is because he just spent five minutes very kindly and mm -hmm. gently mm -hmm. saying what I would have said in about two words, which is, you don't know how to sharpen your plane blades. <laughs> which, oh, I, yeah, no, I, I wasn't you, saying that. Well, Captain okay. Snark rides again. <laughs> but essentially, yeah. All right, let's move on. Well, what, what, um, but so. You're, but Mike is saying, what Mike is saying is to be fair to me, yeah. is that if you have, if you are truly sharpening your blade correctly, mm -hmm. that blade angle doesn't really matter. Sharpness is more important. Yeah. Because sharpness allows you to take a really light cut, and a really light cut will help you almost eliminate tear out. Yes. So when he was smoothing his top, and he was, uh, it sounds like he was he was able to plane it fine enough, but he was getting tear out. I'm assuming in that situation, maybe he should have stopped, you know, and then gone back over it with a card scraper and 
but see, yeah. the card scraper, I believe, is what caused yeah. ultimately caused him problems because he says it's it has divots or you know recesses, and that was from mm. isolating the card scraper. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, and that Phil Lewis says like a cabinet scraper yeah, is better because you can't that. isolate. Yeah, I mean, the, you're right. Uh, you, the flex of the card scraper lets you attack certain areas. It also means it lets you dig. Right, deeper. Yeah. Unless you feather out yeah. like crazy. Right, and tear out is basically basically any defect in wood as we're working at is um, it's a negative space where you know we're always taking wood, which is a big object, a log, and taking it down into smaller pieces. As we work, we try to refrain from taking out too much, meaning tear out. And in order to get rid of it, you have to bring the entire Even surrounding more. surfaces down to that low area, which is what hand planes are, are really good at. But. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you can, if you have some, some tear out and you just scrape it out, now you have a little hollow. It's, yeah. Um, I have a friend that makes furniture and uses a lot of, uh, sapili, which is uh, yeah. a type of African mahogany. Right. Uh, and he says, you know, this guy knows how to use his hand planes. And, and he says, when I get sapili, especially the kind that's kind of rowy, yeah. says, yes. don't even, Stripey. don't even, it's time for the belt sander. Right. Rowy yeah. or stri- or ribbon stripe, basically you know, every half to quarter inch along its length, the grain is changing, changing direction. direction. So yes. it's um, that's what I said. It's impossible. There's no such thing as a correct right. direction to plane it. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was there, working with some schedule very similar like that. Uh-uh. It just didn't happen. Yeah. And the reason why that wood is like that is because when the grain, when the, the, the fibers grow up, they grow up like uh, wrapping around the tree in a spiral. Yes. And, and they alternate Ooh, the direction right. of the spiral each year. Oh, so man. that's why you end up with that rowy grain. Or like interlocked that. grain. Interlocked yes. grain. It's yeah. insane stuff, yeah. There's an interesting type of figure. Um, I actually uh, was, t- was talking to Phil Lowe about this. We He found this really nice board um, for the top of a uh, Queen Anne Lowboy that he's building for an upcoming video workshop. And it has it exhibited this really cool figure that looks like it almost shimmers and it looks like water. And it's, it's called... Um, compression figure so it's there was a branch coming out like a y from the trunk imagine and where that branch is you know hanging down due to gravity it's creating a lot of compression and then the wood tries to strengthen the area where that branch is coming out and you get this awesome stuff called compression figure which is just like it's very three-dimensional hmm. um really neat stuff we found it on some walnut that he had um, so people might maybe call that waterfall maybe uh, possibly. I mean, there are so many terms like that that are plumb. What one guy calls it, another guy might not call it the same yeah. thing. But it, waterfall would be an apt uh, yeah. description of it. Um, he calls it compression figure. Um, but really neat stuff. Uh, anyhow, that's a compression figure. That's a, that's right. Uh, okay. Well, let's move on to our next segment of the day, and this is going to be all-time favorite tool of all time for this week, where we sing the praises from the bell towers of our most cherished, beloved tools for this week. So, Matt. Yes. I get to What's start going this on week? in your hollow head? Uh, so... Picking up on your... Yeah. I know what yours is. Yeah, I recently uh, started to do a little more turning, and in particular, I was making round boxes that were inspired by the round barn... Probably small. ...at the Hancock Shaker Village. So... Anyways, um, I haven't put any on the website, but I've put some on. I've been posting them to Twitter. Some. Oh, they're gorgeous. Yes, really, really nice. <laughs> do these Mike. round boxes, when you hollow them out, um, does the inner wall of the box side meet the bottom at a ninety, or is there a slope? Uh, it's. I don't know if it's exactly ninety, but it's closer it's to close. ninety. I was thinking that that's a nice effect in a solid chunk when you hollowed out and it's almost a 90 yeah at the bottom corner so uh when i wanted i wanted to start doing this it was my take on the traditional oval shaker box i wanted something that was fast to make uh and i milk paint them at least the body and so i have a little mini lathe and i had a a, a spindle gouge a roughing gouge and i had i believe you pronounce it badan tool Okay. Or bidet tool. I believe it's bidet. Bidet. Nah. It's not bidet, bidet. tool. <laughs> it's bidet or a beaden tool. Um, and you have your, your awesome four jaw chuck. 
I bought a four jaw chuck. <laughs> yes, yes it for cost this. more than your lathe. This yes. costs more than I paid for the lathe. Yes, this is also a story of I probably have spent close oh, to four hundred dollars equipping myself to make these boxes, uh, and that's not counting the cost of the stuff I already had. Better sell some boxes, Matt. Oh man, tell me about it. Um, all right, so I bought a really nice four jaw chuck, uh, and then I was like, okay, well, I started reading Richard Raffin books. And, okay, how am I going to hollow out these things? And the first one I made, I oriented the grain, like, for faceplate turning. And so I was able to use a bowl gouge to empty out most of it. Right. And I had to buy that. And then I realized I needed something to make the side straight and come down to 90 degrees. So I went and got what's called a square and uh, scraper. Okay, and it's actually not at ninety degrees. The left corner, uh, it's it's the front edge is sloped back, so the left corner sticks out further than the right corner. So, so you can speak. get right into a so corner. you can get right into a okay. corner. So I bought that, and then I learned after I made that one that I was doing it wrong because the the wood cupped and it was no longer round anymore. Okay, so I realized you have to turn bowls like they're spindles. With the ingrain. So turning out the end. Hmm. Yeah. So you have to hollow out hollow ingrain. Hollow out the end, yeah. Well, let me tell you that a bowl gouge <laughs> does not really work for that. Very Richard Raffin somehow can do it with gouges, but I can't. And so I could do it with uh, this scraper, but it was really tedious. Mm-hmm. So I started to look for uh, a hollowing tool. And they're not, I mean, uh, you know, 80 bucks or more. And they're all different kinds of them. But then I went to see my buddy Walt at uh, Brass City Records and Tools. And I went there for – I really wasn't looking for turning tools because he never has turning tools there as far as I remember. I went there to look for a 24 or 36-inch Starrett rule, which he almost – which he's never had before. Right. So I go in there on the Saturday morning and Walt's there. Not only does he have a 24-inch Starrett, which I bought – he also has this box of turning tools, which just came in. And in there, I find a nice uh, old-style tur- hollowing tool mm-hmm. and, a, and a parting tool, which I've been wanting to. So I buy them, and the hollowing tool, I sharpen it on my grinder, and it is perfect. What do you mean a hollowing tool? Is it like a gouge or a scraper? It's, more, that... it's like a scraper. Okay. And But instead of being straight across the end, the, front, the end of it is rounded. Okay. And you can also actually use some of the side. The, the side comes back like an inch, and then it's cut in with a mm. relief. Oh, okay. So that you can use some of the side. But because it's rounded and you're only engaging a very small section of the tool in the ingrain at a time, it cuts just like – I mean, it's like butter. Oh, what, cool. what do you charge you for? Uh, 20 bucks. Nice. Yeah, yeah. Whew. I always huh. find great deals at that place. I so these little there. round boxes, really the challenge there is you're just trying to remove a whole lot of stock in this in center grain, of this yeah. end grain. Yeah. So a lathe is one way to do it. Is there any way you could possibly saw out the interior of the box? Mike, are you suggesting that I make a pants-on box? <laughs> There's going to be a rumble in the parking lot. Uh, well, more actually, angry emails coming. <laughs> actually, what I do is... Um, uh, I start you one thing I've done is start by hogging out as much as I can with Forstner bits. Oh. By putting a drill uh, drill press chuck in my tailstock. Okay. Yeah. There you go. Yes. Or a bandsaw. <laughs> um, or a bandsaw. <laughs> well, uh Mike, how's your planer doing? Uh my planer and I were not on speaking <laughs> terms uh recently. I have an an old papers um, were filed. I think it's a RC33 Delta Rockwell 13-inch planer from the 80s. Awesome rock solid thing weighs about 450 pounds. Um it's all the, neon. The thing I've always really <laughs> liked about it like, was like looks like a mommy vice um, suit. <laughs> wears penny loafers without socks. <laughs> I could plane really thin stock like down below a quarter of inch thick, which a lot of planers can't do very well. This planer could always handle that really well. The thing I didn't like about it is the knives were just horrendous to change and set. So I changed out the regular steel knives with some disposable knife insert retrofit things, which are really cool. The problem was the the blade ended up sticking out beyond the cutter head than the standard blades, which meant I had to readjust all my the little uh, guide rollers and all that kind of the hold down rollers, all that feed rollers, that kind of stuff in order to 
match the new cutting diameter. So that was a pain in the butt, and the thing just never performed quite as well on thin stock as it used to. So I was kind of bummed out about it. Um, I was planning some really thin stock, some very thin drawer partitions in a jewelry case, and I kept getting these horrendous troughs and gouges once it got below a certain thickness. And I was just pulling my hair out, resetting the, the roller heights and all this kind of stuff. Nothing was working. And I finally remembered this trick that people would use um, where they would stick some sort of a board, piece of MDF, um, in the planer and run the stock through it. And uh, basically raising the planer bed. Raising the planer bed, a um, little platen or something like that. I've never a considered it. on the infeed end. Yep. So I tried a piece of half-inch MDF, put my thin stock through, perfect. No snipe, no little gouging out or anything. So got that MDF, I screwed a cleat on, I put a coat of shellac on it and waxed it, and now that just lives in my planer for any thickness of stock. I just have to remember to add that half inch to my little scale when I'm setting the depth, but it really transformed a planer into something that was problematic into my favorite tool of the week. So wait, wait, wait. Here's a question, though. Yes. How thin are we <clears throat> talking? I was like, um, I was trying to mill some stuff up like three sixteenths of an inch thick. Ooh, and wow. that worked. Yeah. Yes. Because I mean, we're I, now, because this is important, because yeah. now we're getting into shops on veneer territory. Hmm. Three sixteenths is a little, you'd want to go eighth of an inch. Could you do I eighth could, of an inch? I was in my test pieces, because I kept going down, 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 just um, checking the quality of cut. I was down to eighth of an inch thick stock on my awesome 1980s planer. Yes, because you could do shops on veneer at eighth of an inch. Hmm. You could. It's a little thick, but you could still do it. Uh, that's, that's the, see, I see the College of the Redwoods folks who do a lot of shops on veneer. Right. And they're using their planers with that same platen in there. Yes. And they're getting it really thin. And I have some theories on why certain planers don't work well doing that and other planers do that we don't need to get into. But, uh, I, I need to try this on my planer to see if I can get under an eighth of an inch. I suspect the, the, the rollers inside the planer, we were talking about this earlier, I wonder if maybe the rollers weren't able when when you had you know the head of the planer cranked down so far to the metal bed. Now maybe the the rollers they just can't exert enough pressure onto the bed because it's not designed for stuff that thin. And then by effectively pushing up the bed, now you're now those rollers are able to exert more pressure and keep it flat on the on the auxiliary bed you put in. That that seems so it was probably chattering around before a little bit. Well, I know the exact problem you were having, that big divot it takes out maybe within a few inches yeah. of the end of the board. Yeah, but it isn't it isn't snipe from no. the end of the board. Right. And it's like it's maybe in a two bit. or three inches in, and then I have this maybe half inch wide by sixteenth inch deep trough yes. going across yes. the brain. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. I've had that too. Yeah. So it's one of those things where I don't know what the cause was. I don't know why the solution works, and at this point, I don't really care. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Mike. Yeah. Well, Look for the article on a future fine woodworking. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> It'll be really short. I don't know what the problem was. I don't know why it works, and I don't care. Just do this. Just do it. <laughs> well, I'm breaking from convention for Shop Talk Live, and I'm going to mention a tool that I'm totally in love with, but it's more of a home-building tool. But it's so damn useful that I thought it was worth mentioning. So I've been doing some work in my, uh, in my shop, which involved, um, I had, I had some, uh, old, like three quarter inch rough sawn paneling in the ceiling. And I had to cut some off right at the corner. And the problem was, um, that this, the ceiling paneling kind of went through one room and then into another room. It was one continuous board. So I had to find a way to sever it Flush cut it with the wall. So flush, thank you. Exactly, that's exactly it. Yep. Um, and there was no easy way to do this. So I went and got one of those. I wanted to get an oscillating tool. That seemed to make sense, but Mul they're expensive. The yes. oscillating multi-tools, like Fine used to make, well, still does, make the Multimaster, yeah. which is the Cadillac. And I With that little triangular little pad out front. They, they often have those triangular pads, or they have, it's just like a, um, like a rectangular piece with little yeah. teeth on the end of it. Okay, right. right. For exactly what we're talking about here, flush cutting against the wall. And I found a rigid model that was 80 bucks. And I don't know how they keep their price points so low because the thing is, it's tough. It's well-built. It doesn't feel like a piece of junk. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's a well-built little piece of machinery. 
Um, and deal, it just, a deal with Satan. <laughs> it just, God, it, it just made, it changed my life. You yeah. can do so much stuff with something that can get into a corner like that. I mean, I use it for any number of things. Now you say it's not, it's a really a, a fine home building thing, yeah. but I will tell you one of the, probably one of my, one of my top five favorite things in fine woodworking since I've been here involved using one of those. Do you remember the back cover with uh, Seth Rolland on it? Uh, he's from Port Townsend, Washington, and he's the guy that makes tables and legs and such by cutting in from one direction on a bandsaw, then cutting in from a different, the other direction, and he flips the billet back and forth, cutting in but not oh, severing yes. anything. Right, and then he pulls it open like an accordion, oh, and yeah. it makes some awesome shape. Yes. Yeah. He uses, uh, uh, he has one of those gizmos, yep. and he equips the end of it with a little piece with no teeth and then he sticks sandpaper on it and that's how he gets down into oh, the little that's right the that's little, cool uh va- the, the the tightest part of the valley in there yeah so that's, that's interesting so he uses just and that's tape what, some yeah. double stick tape some sandpaper to the face of the blade yep okay so i can use it for flush cutting stuff to my walls and for <laughs> sanding the insides <laughs> of my accordion furniture <laughs> right cool that's, i'm yeah. sold that's two uses <laughs> listen anytime you can make an excuse to your significant other to purchase another tool yeah it's a good day the only thing i, I hate about those things is that whenever they that you saw oh gosh i hope there's not an ad in fine woodworking this month with this picture in there but they always show this little corner sander yeah. thing sanding it into like the corner of like a drawer bottom or something. Right. It's like, how do you sand into a corner of a drawer bottom? You sand it before it's a corner. So. <laughs> what if you're refinishing, Mike? Exactly. Don't. <laughs> it's like, if you need to refinish, it's time to build a new piece of yeah. furniture. So The only thing that bothers me about these things, though, is that the vibration does get to you after a while. Yeah. To your hands. It's it's yeah. a lot. To, and I don't know if that's like age. I'm showing age you or something. Get those, it uh, bothers me. You can get the gel gloves. That are designed for that. Like really? if you're using a lawnmower all day or any sort That's of cool. like a, a random orbit sand, there's yeah. a lot of b- vibration. You know, like the bicycle seats with a gel, you can get gloves like that Ooh. and they keep that uh, your hand from going numb. I, I'm finishing up two uh, coffee tables on commission and uh, there were so many parts that I decided to, you know, to sand them all with a random orbit sander. And I had that numbness too, but yeah. my solution, I knew about those gloves, but I was more thinking, how much is that new Bosch mm. Renmore yeah. sander that has like... Uh, it was it was incredible. We tried it at AWFS a couple of years ago. Yeah, it's really awesome. And there's something like the sanding mechanism is like, it's like, you know, they make those buildings and they put them on those wiggy wiggies that so if there's an earthquake... It has a vibration The damper. building doesn't... <laughs> yes. Doesn't move with the earth. Matt's doing the hula right now. <laughs> right. It has some kind of wiggy wiggy in there so that the the vibration of the sanding pad isn't tr- translated oh, or cool. transferred to the... And it really works. Yes. Okay. You yeah. got it? No, oh, I didn't. Because okay. I was like, I don't really sand very often. Yeah. All right. Moving on. Next question comes from Mark, and he writes, I am just about to pull the trigger on my first spray setup. One of those new Apollo Evo 4 HVLPs that just came out. Uh, And I have a question. In Michael Dresner's video on your site, he set up an inexpensive spray booth in his garage using cardboard and a house fan. Cool. Except that I mentioned this to a pro, and he said that's a big no-no. That even with waterborne finishes, and that's what Dresner's talking about, um there is a risk of a regular fan exploding. You have to get a dedicated explosion-proof fan designed for such a purpose. Bummer, those ain't cheap. So what gives? Does using a regular fan risk making me part of the finish, or is this a wives' tale? So, again, he's talking about waterborne finishes. You, you certainly don't want to use um, uh, a fan uh, when you're spraying you know, uh, shellac-based stuff or lacquer or something that's flammable. But uh, what's the deal with uh, waterborne? Well, we actually have a review of HVLP sprayers uh, coming up. Our um, uh, Ben Blackmar on staff is editing that. And Terry Masachi, who's a great finisher and instructor, um, longtime pro finisher, is writing both a review and a great article on, on using these sprayers. Um, her recommendation in the article is pretty much this thing, you know, set up a, a simple cardboard backdrop with a house fan. And so I asked Ben, did you know, what's Terry's thought on the explosion thing? And uh, her take was, nah, with water-based finishes, it it isn't that big of an issue. Certainly if you're a pro, if you're setting up a spray shop, I think that's probably a minimal investment is to get that right, you know. The uh, correct type the of fan. The correct stuff. But, or the 
If you're, I think if you're spraying water-based finishes on occasion, um, you know, don't cite me on this. Don't come talking to me, but <laughs> yeah, go for it. Uh, yeah, don't worry about it. And I, I will add this because we did a Q&A on a similar issue. We asked, I believe it was Jeff Jewett, uh, who's also a professional finisher mm-hmm. and uh, finish manufacturer. And actually wrote an article recommending a cardboard and using a house fan. Yes. Uh, And Jeff said if you want to spray something like shellac, what you do at home is just take it outside. And he, in that Q&A, he outlined, you know, you want it to be not too hot, low humidity, do it in the shade, and low wind. And you should spray so that the wind pulls any uh, overspray away from the thing you're spraying, and he added at the end, don't do it next to your neighbor's car. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder if that's because he did something like that. I seriously doubt it. But you could spray something like that outside when there isn't, you want a minimal amount of breeze so that it carries away everything, and that's safe, evidently, because there's enough. Okay. Uh, So. All right. Moving on. I got a a question for Mike from Chris Hudson, and uh, Chris writes, I often see Mike using Japanese chisels in his videos. Prices on these are all over the place. How expensive are the ones Mike uses? Grizzly has a 10-piece set for a buck 80, 180. Japan Woodworker has some at 300 bucks, 70 bucks, and 25 each. Which to get? And blue steel or white steel? What's the deal, Mike? Hey, Chris. Um, I do like Japanese chisels. I've owned a bunch over the years and have had Japanese and Western chisels. And I ended up more and more these days, I am sort of going with Japanese chisels. Um, They do run the price. They vary pretty widely. Some of my chisels I bought years ago from Japan Woodworker. They were their basic white steel $50 chisels. They may be a little bit more expensive now. Some of my other chisels are quite a bit more expensive, you know, upwards of 150 or $200. Um, I'd like to think there's a difference and that somehow my more expensive chisels are somehow worth the extra money. But, uh, you know, in, in practical terms, I can't honestly uh, tell a big difference between the two. In terms of white versus blue steel, think of it uh, sort of like O1 versus A2 steel. Uh, in traditional in western plane irons and that the white steel will sharpen faster um, but the blue steel is a little bit tougher like an a2 steel and they say will hold up a little better on tougher woods um, and uh, so and actually you know the white and blue has nothing to do with the color of the steel it has to do with the the wrapper that the the raw steel is is wrapped in as it's shipped from the manufacturer and that's what denotes the different type of steel yeah, yeah. so um but here's the thing, whether you're – the one thing you are getting from a, a, a relatively higher-priced chisel, say starting $70 on up, um, which, by the way, you know, back in the day when you would buy a set of the, the four blue-handled chisels for, say, 35 bucks, spending 50 bucks on a chisel was a pretty big investment. Today, any good-quality chisel is probably going to cost you at least $50 on yes. up. So I think, you know – Price comparison wise, Japanese chisels don't have to be that expensive. But by paying for $70 on up for a chisel, the one thing you can get is you can get a truly handmade tool by a guy in Japan who not only has been probably making these his whole life, but his family has probably been making the same tool for generations. So, in terms of, I just think that's neat that, you know, this is made by a person who their sole passion. Hopefully it's their passion because they're doing it every day. Is they're making this this high quality tool? So yeah. um, I think that's cool. Here's one thing: regardless of the quality of tool you get, sorry, Matt. You just keep going and going. I do. Going. Well, I'm just I don't want to take a breath because Matt's ready to talk. I'm sorry, Matt. No, no. I, I was going to say one, two, two things. Okay. One, it used to be the case. I don't know if it's still the case, but in Japan, woodworkers catalog and online, they would tell you the name of the dude that made the chisel. Yes. Yes, which is cool. Yes. And probably some of the, like, Haida Tool and some of those other places probably do as well. Almost every good quality supply of Japanese tools will tell you the dude, the, yeah, the maker of the like tool. Joe yes. Bubba Dog Smith or whatever it is. Yes, yes, I, though I doubt that's his name. <laughs> <laughs> uh, then the other thing I was going to, this is my impression, and I'm going to see if you agree with me. Maybe this is what you're going to talk about next. So 150 bucks for the chisel. Okay. You get to a certain point with the price because there are some Japanese chisels that we're talking 
400 $500, $600 per chisel. Yes. At, some, at what point do you get to it where what you're paying for does not affect the performance? Because sometimes it's, okay, these are Damascus steel. That's a lot harder to make. But the folded steel. Folded over cool, steel yes. with a cool look. Or it's ebony handles. Right. Or, you know, this was made from the sword of a samurai in the 13th century and the, he, yeah. you know, whatever. That's a really good point. In fact, we had a great article by John Reed Fox a little while back on Japanese chisels. And his point was beyond a certain point, what you're paying for, like you mentioned the Damascus steel or ebony handles, isn't affecting performance. And I think really, you know, it's kind of a rule of thumb. I think once you get up above, say, 150 bucks a chisel, what you're paying for beyond that point is probably more has to do with aesthetics than the actual functionality mm -hmm. of the tool. So, yeah. There are some right. really beautiful pairing chisels with ebony handles in the Japan Woodworker catalog that I want, but, you know, they're like $300 yeah, a chisel. Yes. Yeah, and not to get uh, – I, I will. I'm doing this on purpose. So John Reed Fox, like he pulls out a, a chisel because I asked him about this because I'm thinking, oh, I want these like wild chisels. And he pulls out this chisel and it's very plain looking. And he's, you know, I said, what's the best chisel like you own? Because he has everything. And he pulled out this, this chisel and I look and it's, I'm kind of like, it kind of just looks like a chisel. Wooden handle, black, you know, blade and hollow ground, all this. It's like, okay. I go, what's so great about this? He goes, because there's a Japanese term called shibui, which kind of translates to like perfectly realized. It's sort of like he basically said, this is shibui. This is, this is like the perfect realization of the chisel. No more than it has to be. It's not trying to be anything more than it is. It just is. It's just sort of that perfect example. The proportions are right. The neck to the blade to the handle. Everything is just right. So, um Anyway, I thought that was really cool. You're looking yeah. for shibui. Yes. So one of my favorite descriptions I saw of a Japanese chisel was that, mm -hmm. you know, they, the, they're they laminated. Yeah. And that, that there's the tool steel on the bottom, and then there's a softer steel on top. And they were like, the softer steel on top, whatever they were calling it, comes from a <laughs> anchor chain that yes. was located in the harbor outside <laughs> of this city. And it's this wrought iron. And, da, 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 and I was like, oh, I'm going to use my sound effect. That's, right. <laughs> oh, that's cool. I love all Big that deal. stuff. Big yeah. deal. So here's, the, uh, here's one thing. If, if you try out a Japanese chisel, number one, don't worry about getting a whole set because you're not going to save a lot of money per chisel. And you're going to end up a lot of sizes you're probably not going to use. Start with one size you use a lot. You know, half inch, maybe three quarter inch. Get one. Um, and the thing is with Japanese chisels is that they are made, the cutting edge is made from a, a steel that's tempered much harder than Western chisels. The thing is, tempering all the way out to that very cutting edge is really difficult to control, which means that cutting edge on a brand new Japanese chisel is going to be really brittle. And this is a scary thing because you're going to sharpen it up. You're going to take a couple wax and it's going to fracture off and it will freak you out. And you'll think I just wasted a ton of money on a tool, which is defective. Don't worry about it. Just grind it back, polish it back um, beyond the fractures. Use it some more. It's going to fracture again. But after a couple sharpenings, you're going to get back to the properly tempered steel and it's going to hold an edge incredibly long for you. So there is a break-in period, which if you're not familiar with, will freak you out. Other than that, they're really, really good tools. Yeah. And don't hollow grind them, right? Don't want to hollow grind them. Yeah, I, I, I this know. fracture is really freaking me out, man. <laughs> um, all right. Well, listen, we get a lot of comments on our iTunes store page as well as through email. And every week we read a few. So here we go. For this week, uh, Jim Corrin wrote, Hearing between the lines, sometimes reading about something just doesn't convey the details as well as listening to experts discuss it. Great supporting media for fine woodworking. From BWLIN in – oh, so – from BWL in Colorado. Great podcast. I enjoy the magazine, online membership, and the podcast. I'm learning a lot from you guys, and your humor is appreciated, too. There's one person that likes it. And finally, <laughs> from Dan Quayle. Whoa. You does think? He, does he spell think? potato right in here? I don't know if it's in here, is it? I love this sh You know, you may have alienated a reader if it really is Dan Quayle. Uh, I love this show. I discovered it recently on in my administration with George 
uh, H, no, which no, one was it? No. <laughs> no. I love this show. I discovered it recently and have started listening from the beginning. I've written in twice, and both questions have been answered on the podcast shortly after I sent them in. Love the humor. Appreciate the getting back on track when you find yourselves in a rabbit hole. And mostly, I appreciate the clarity you bring to the explanations. As exciting as the first seven video podcasts were... <sighs> And he has mm. yawn in parentheses. I'm not sure you ever needed the video format. Keep up the good work. Yeah. With that, that about wraps it up this week for Shop Talk Live. We'll be back again in two weeks on May 16th for our next episode. In the meantime, show us a little love by leaving a comment on iTunes, and by all means, click that five-star rating. Don't forget to send your questions and comments into shoptalk at tauntin, T-A-U-N-T-O-N.com. You can catch the podcast via iTunes, Stream it on your computer at shoptalklive.com or catch us on iHeartRadio. Cheers, everybody. This fracture is really freaking me out, man.